Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 208, The Battle of Englefield. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. This week, members are listening to an episode on cultural hegemony. The episode actually came out of a discussion between co-producer Z and I at the pub the other night, and it gave me a new perspective on some of the parts of history that I've become frustrated with as we've moved along. And something you might not know is that Z taught at the London School of Economics, which is one of the top schools in the world, and I thought that the BHP community might want to hear some of that expertise, so I convinced her to share this talk with you on this month's Shop Talk. And so far, it's gotten rave reviews. So if you'd like to listen to that episode and all the other members' episodes, you can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Steve, Mike, and Jeff for signing up already. When we left off, the great heathen army had conquered East Anglia, established their dominion, and then a good portion of it returned to their territory of Jorvik. However, not everyone returned north, nor did everyone stay in East Anglia. Their leaders, Ivor and Ubba, who were brothers in battle and the sons of Ragnar, departed the land. Some accounts state that Ivor died, though records do seem to indicate that he actually returned to his lands in Ireland and continued the fighting there. As for Ubba, it's hard to say what exactly happened. In fact, the experts aren't even 100% sure that he was involved in the defeat of East Anglia. He might have left long before that battle even started. The whole record is a bit murky. And the tale of Ubba for us stops here. We never really learned what happened to him. Now, some later sources mention that another army was campaigning in the West and in Devon in the late 870s. And some make the argument that the Western Danish force was being led by Ubba. However, that is anything but a firm fact. It's genuinely difficult to know exactly what became of Ubba. Either way, though, in 870, the great heathen army was without Ivor and Ubba. And they were also back in the north, planning their next move. There was only one important question to the people of the British Isles. Where would the great heathen army go next? If you're a fan of The Last Kingdom, you probably got the impression from Rutger Hauer that the Danes were going to be going to Mercia, or maybe Wales. The reason why is because everyone's favorite replicant made it quite clear that the plan was to take out the north and the midlands and possibly the west, and that they wouldn't go to Wessex until it was the last kingdom standing. Hence the name of the series. It's an exciting way to frame the story, and it gives Wessex an aura of destiny and importance. Unfortunately, history is an inconsistent novelist, and this story simply did not play out that way. The Danes weren't saving Wessex for last. They were opportunists when it came down to it, and they seemed to have been picking off easy targets that they thought they could get away with. And think about what happened in the last several years. After the fiasco at Nottingham, Mercia was cowed. In fact, they were so demoralized that the Danes were able to march through their territory at will without any fear of retaliation. So from the Danish point of view, their territories of East Anglia and Northumbria now had a compliant buffer state in the form of Mercia, and that could slow down or possibly even discourage any attacks from Wales or Wessex. 
It was a pretty good deal when you think about it. So why mess with it? Especially when there were bigger threats in Wales and Wessex. Now, in spite of our modern associations with gentle hills and fluffy sheep, Wales was a serious issue for the Danes, and it would have been a daunting target. King Rodri Mauer, Rodri the Great, had already defeated the Vikings in previous engagements, and he was still alive and active in Wales, as were his sons. Now, it is possible that Ubba might have gone to fight in Wales, though that's not exactly a sure thing, but it does raise the possibility that maybe Wales was already being dealt with, and that alone might have discouraged the great heathen army from going there. But even if it wasn't, fighting a protracted guerrilla war over rough and unknown terrain was exactly the sort of thing that the Danes avoided if it was at all possible. They were always looking for an advantage, and Wales, at this point, was not easy pickings. Wessex, on the other hand, looked ripe for conquest. Only a few years earlier, in Snottingham, the great heathen army got a good look at the men of Wessex. Pretty much all of them, actually. King Athelred and his brother Alfred mustered the full might of Wessex. And even though they were joined by King Burgred and the men of Mercia, they were still weak. I mean, they couldn't oust the Danes from their own city. They didn't even try. In fact, their army was so cowardly and undisciplined that they even fled from their own siege camps. Think about that. The Wessex and Mercian show of force resulted in mass desertion and the kings having to pay a Danegeld without the great heathen army ever having to raise a shield. <laughs> they might as well have sent the Danes an invitation to visit scenic Winchester. Now, to be fair, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't tell us what the strategy was for the Danes, nor does it tell us what their personal feelings were. So, this is just all postulation. But if I was in their shoes, I think I'd go for Wessex as well. They've got a young, untested king who comes from a line of very short-lived kings. A kingdom that was already starting to show signs of discord and disruption. And apparently, no one there had the will to fight. Now this is what easy pickings looks like. And so, after resting in their northern fortress for the better part of a year, the great heathen army marched forth once more. And this time, they were under the command of Halfdan, and a guy named Bagseg. Now we know who Halfdan was. He appears to have been involved in this invasion since its early days, and he was one of the supposed sons of Ragnar, and the brother of Ivar. But who the hell is Bagseg? We don't know. In fact, we don't know if he was with the great heathen army all along, or if he just showed up this year. Whoever he was, though, he and Halfdan had enough renown within the northern army that they could order a march south. And the warriors obeyed. Or maybe they didn't march. Maybe they rode. Or sailed. It's not clear. Now, some writers have made the argument that the great heathen army must have approached by sea. The basic theory behind this is that the Danes appear to have taken the West Saxons by surprise, and a quick approach up the Thames would accomplish this. And that very well might have happened. But not everyone agrees with that theory, and for good reason. The Danes were advancing late in the year, and were unlikely to have been slowed down or bothered in any way by the Mercians, 
who had already shown that they would prefer to keep their heads down. So approaching by horse, or even by foot, still might have taken the West Saxons off guard due to how far outside the campaigning season they were. But regardless of how they got there, in the winter of 870, the Danes advanced on Berkshire. It's always Berkshire, isn't it? What is with that region? But once in Berkshire, they set their sights on a town that was probably named after a prominent local called the Red One, or Redda, and also his family, the Redingoss. Everyone just called it Reddingham. You know it as Redding. Choosing Redding was a stroke of genius on the part of the Danes because it solved two key problems for them. Food and defenses. There was a reason why we had a campaigning season in this period. There was a reason why armies didn't typically advance into hostile territory in winter. And it wasn't because they didn't like getting their boots soggy. By campaigning in winter, probably sometime around Christmas, the Danes had taken on massive logistical problems that would have to be contended with before anyone even set foot on the battlefield. An army marches on its stomach, and acquiring supplies in the field would have been incredibly difficult in the barren months of winter. The fields had already been threshed, livestock had already been slaughtered, and their meat had been salted and cured, and the woods were largely going dormant, waiting for the warmth of spring to return. So foraging would have been incredibly difficult, and the Danes can only pack so many power bars. Consequently, it's much easier to campaign from spring to fall when your army could grab a snack on the go from the nearby forests, fields, and farms. So if you're the Danes, and you're hoping to take the West Saxons by surprise, attacking around Christmas was a clever move but only if you could fix the issue of how you were going to feed your army while you're in hostile territory. Enter Reading. Reading wasn't just a town named after a local Anglo-Saxon guy with a cool name. Much like Snottingham, Reading was a royal ton, meaning that it was an administrative center for King Athelred and his ealdormen. By marching on Reading, they wouldn't just show the local West Saxons how weak their leadership was they would also acquire a great deal of loot. Now remember, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were an agricultural economy, and the engine that drove daily life was the food rent. As food rent was acquired, it was concentrated as it went further and further up the ladder, meaning that a churl gathering food rent from his tenant farmers and slaves would have far less than an elderman who was gathering food rent from many churls. And of course the king would have the greatest delivery of food rent. Now, because Reading was a royal ton, their storehouses were likely well-stocked for winter with a substantial portion of the food rents that had been gathered from the local area. In fact, there's also a good chance that Reading didn't just house food rents, but also the local church scot, which was the forced tithe for the local clergy, and that would have been collected from the peasants in November for Martinmas. So even though the fields had already been harvested, and the sheep had already been slaughtered, that really wouldn't be much of a problem for the Danes, because they didn't need to go out there and take those provisions. Instead, the West Saxons had already done the work for them, and it was all just sitting there in Reading, like the world's best Christmas present. Now that's only one reason why Reading was a brilliant target. The other reason was its location. 
Reading was straddling two rivers, the Thames and the Kennet. And the best place for the Danes to position themselves would be at the nexus of those two rivers. With an arrangement like that, they would only have to construct a single wall facing west, and then they could use the rivers to protect the remainder of their holdings. If you'd like to see how defensible this location was, take a look at a map of Reading. See where the Kennet and the Thames meet? The area that was later called the King's Mead, or the King's Meadow. That is an ideal place to hunker down. Now these days, it's mostly train tracks, a Tesco's, a McDonald's, a Staples, and a few other stores. Pretty typical urban sprawl stuff. But during this period, it would have been lightly settled, and the Danes would be able to loot the royal settlement, which was likely straddling the Kennet, and then hole up in a natural bunker. And if they sailed, they would be able to keep their ships beached nearby, just in case they needed to make a quick escape, or get provisions. It was also close to Wallingford, which was another major royal estate and a key crossing point for the Thames. And this meant that they could gain even more loot without much effort and also prevent easy travel throughout Wessex, which would make it more difficult for King Athelred to gather men to his banner. There's also the wealthy monastery of Abingdon that was just down the way. So Reading was a fantastic staging ground for a Danish invasion of Wessex. Halfdan and Baxek clearly knew what they were doing. Unfortunately, much like we don't know how the Danes approached the town, we also don't know how they took it. We aren't given details on the defensive capabilities of Reading. Whether they put up a fight, whether they fled, or what happened to the people who lived there. Instead, we're just told that the Danes took the town. My suspicion is that there probably wasn't much fighting. No one was really expecting this, so there probably wouldn't have been much time to prepare for battle. Now, Reading was a ton, sure, but it wasn't exactly a massive military settlement, so any military-capable locals would have been vastly outnumbered by the Danish army. And at Snottingham, we saw how reluctant the West Saxons were to fight the Danes, even when they were prepared and gathered into a big army. So my guess is that the Anglo-Saxons probably legged it and the Danes set about securing their new base camp for the conquest of Wessex. And for three days, the Danish camp would have been bustling with activity as the army constructed ramparts, dig ditches, and did everything else they needed to to fortify their new encampment at the nexus of the two rivers. Now, of course, the Danes weren't the only people who were active. King Athelred reacted swiftly and called his firds and prepared an army. However, that would take a little time for him to raise. After all, the men would need to be summoned from all the corners of his kingdom. Elderman Athelwolf, on the other hand, was already in the area. He was the local lord of Berkshire, and his fyrd could be raised and mobilized quickly. So while King Athelred was still sending out messengers and gathering men, Elderman Athelwolf was in the field with a large force of his own. And Elderman Athelwolf was no stranger to battle. He was the same guy who ten years earlier had defeated the Danes when they attempted to raid Winchester. And here he was, in the field once again, in his own lands that he knew quite well. And he was waiting for his king to join him, but he was also looking for an opportunity to strike these Northmen in the meantime. 
As luck would have it, on the third day of their encampment, Halfdan and Baxek decided to send out a large detachment into the field under the command of two lords. The goal was, presumably, to gain further provisions and scout the area. And so a Danish force was sent out, and it headed west. Elderman Athelwolf likely had scouts that were carefully watching the Danes, and I imagine that word of this advance quickly reached his ears. Now, Athelwolf's force probably numbered barely over a thousand men, so he couldn't hope to defeat the full host of the great army. But, a single detachment... He and his men might be able to handle that, but only if he can ensure that he would be fighting that detachment alone, and preferably on a battlefield of his choosing. The Scandinavians, both as an army and as Vikingers, could be devastatingly effective when they chose the circumstances of battle. Allowing them to determine the time and place of battle was pretty much suicide. So he needed this fight to be on his terms and far from the remainder of the Danish forces. And so, Athelwolf went about 9 or 10 kilometers up the river Kennet, to a place called Englefield. It was far to the west of the Danish encampment, and consequently far from any possible support. And there, he arranged his forces, and waited for the Danes. It wasn't long before they came. Now this was the perfect time to strike. The Danes were likely taken completely by surprise. And conversely, the West Saxons had time to secure the position and time their attack to give themselves as big of an advantage as possible. Something to keep in mind when talking about these battles is that technologically and tactically, the Danes and Anglo-Saxons were very similar. They were even pretty similar with the numbers of their mobilized forces most of the time. And this battle would have been no different. Provided that neither side had an advantage in position or timing, these battles often turned on two things, morale and discipline. If either one broke, the army would break with it. But Elderman Athelwolf had ensured that his side did have an advantageous position. And the Danes were already on a knife's edge for morale, having been almost certainly taken by surprise by the Berkshire Ferd. So this was looking good for the West Saxons. And then the forces clashed. As with many battles from this period, this would have been a clash of shields. Spears would have been thrown, arrows might have been loosed, but the real work, the core of the fighting, would have been found in the shield wall. Men wedged shoulder to shoulder, overlapping their shields and desperately trying to force their spears, or maybe their swords if they were wealthy, through the gaps in the wall, and into the enemy. If the wall could be pierced, or if it could be shattered from the onslaught, the fighting might devolve into personal man-to-man -man combat. But the bulk of the battle would be found in the shield wall. It would have been fierce, exhausting, and terrifying. Being so close together, and so reliant on each other's shields, would mean that if the man next to you fell, or even if he just failed to do his job properly, your defenses could vanish in the blink of an eye, and you wouldn't have anywhere to run. You wouldn't be able to even move out of the way of that incoming spear. You wouldn't be able to fall back because there would be a mass of warriors behind you pushing you forward, and obviously you couldn't run forward because there is an army of Danes pushing right against you from there. So if your neighbor's shield broke, or he fell, 
or if your shield broke, you would be exposed with no escape. It would have been awful. And we don't know how long the fighting went on, but we are told that at some point in the fighting, one of the Danish lords fell in battle. And with that loss, the morale of the Danes broke and they ran for their lives. Now, the side of this might have led a less experienced war leader to chase after the broken army and try and crush it. But Elderman Athelwolf was battle-hardened, and he knew that if he chased the Danes back to Reading, his small fyrd would be dwarfed by the full army of Halfdan and Bagsek. So he let them escape, and he turned his forces and headed to join the army of King Athelred and Prince Alfred because they were already on the march. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter. Just find us at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>